Welcome to the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU Community Radio, a program featuring folks around their 20s and 30s from across Maine. I'm your host, Pepin Middlehauser, and I use he, they pronouns. In this show, I hope to provide you with unique perspectives of life from the next generation working to create the future they hope to see. For this episode, I'm devoting it completely to an amazing conversation I had last week with a naturalist, artist, and bookstore manager currently living on MDI. Okay, Uh, my name is Jordan Chalfant. I use the pronouns she, her. And right now my primary occupations are managing a nature and science bookstore in Seal Harbor on Mount Desert Island called The Naturalist Notebook and working on a photographic field guide to the seaweeds of Maine. That's my that's my side passion project. <laughs> uh, I was born and raised in inner city Cleveland, Ohio, which is a very different world from here, let me tell you. <laughs> and um, I spent a lot of time at the library when I was a kid and a lot of time in the Cleveland Metro Parks, which is actually a fairly halfway decent park system uh, just outside of Cleveland. And, and those were kind of my two rocks, my, my grounding points growing up. I was homeschooled because the public school systems in Cleveland were really not functional um, during the time I was growing up in the 90s. and. Uh, I was homeschooled um, K through 12, but when I was 15, I started going to a community college in Cleveland, which was a a very uh, abrupt transition in my sheltered life to um, going to school with an amazingly diverse array of people. I, in some ways, think that community college was my most rigorous and informative college experience in some ways because the people who I was there with really wanted to be there. You know, they were single moms with two kids who wanted a better job to support their families. And so they were going through a nursing program or, you know, a whole, you know, different array of backgrounds that really um, enriched my life and changed my perspectives and um, made me grateful for what I have. Um, And I graduated with an associate's degree uh, at the same time that I graduated from high school. And because of that little bit of exposure to green spaces that I had growing up, and then the overall lack of those in the city of concrete and pavement and rivers on fire and dying lakes, and a whole, whole uh, array of examples of how humans can mess up the world. Um, I knew that I I wanted to go to an environmental college. And so I was just doing um, general internet searches for environmental colleges and College of the Atlantic came up and I hit the timing just right for a program that they do called the Fall Fly-In, where they give you a quote and you write an essay in response to it. Mine was a Rachel Carson quote about finding reserves of strength in the beauty of nature. And it really resonated with me. And apparently my essay resonated with the college because I was one of the students selected from the essay competition to be flown for free up to the college to sit in on classes and do my interview in person. 
And when I visited College of the Atlantic, it was the first time I'd been on an island, the first time I'd been in a national park, the first time I'd seen the ocean, the first time I'd been in a small community. And I was floored. I I was instantly obsessed and wanted nothing more in the world than to get to spend more time there. And uh, ultimately, though, it came down to where I could afford to go to college. I, I paid my way through school myself um, entirely. Um, so I applied to like six other colleges at like Cleveland State and Ohio State and, you know, safety schools, basically. Um, and even though College of the Atlantic had the highest tuition of any college I applied to, they gave me the best financial aid package. So I was able to uh, come up to Maine and live the dream life. And uh, very, very grateful for that. And I, I um, had an amazing time at College of the Atlantic. I, I learned very different things um, in community college versus at College of the Atlantic. In some ways, they were quite opposite from each other in terms of the student demographic and in terms of academic focus. I feel like at College of the Atlantic, I formed a worldview. I found my place in the world to some degree. and. And in other ways, I just became more overwhelmed with the possibilities and the connections and, and how much there is out there. Um, but it it really helped me strengthen my my perspective on the world and to become a more responsible human. Um, and it's sort of cliche, but it really did, you know, turn me into a human ecologist, you know. Um, and while I was at College of the Atlantic, I studied ornithology and botany and taxidermy. I still get contacted by students at the school in regards to the taxidermy dioramas that I did there that are now part of the Door Museum of Natural History because I was sort of one of the most recent students to go really deep in learning taxidermy. And it's it's hard to do. Uh, it's hard to learn these days. Um, and I learned uh, really old methods of doing taxidermy. I was pretty obsessed with, you know, like the heyday of the American Museum of Natural History when there were whole teams of artists putting together these amazing timeless exhibits. And um, so rather than using pre-made um, order from a catalog foam um, inserts for the bodies, I and sculpted them out of tau and excelsior, which are fibers. Um, and, you know, you build a wire frame and wrap it with those materials and um, kind of learn about the animal from the inside out. And I was very passionate about that. It was a lot of fun. It didn't really pan out post-college, but I'm glad I did it. It enriched my life and I learned a lot from it. And uh, I've always been passionate about art and drawing as well. That was another thing that kept me grounded growing up was being able to kind of get away in, in my own thoughts and and um, have a creative outlet. So I've spent a lot of time painting um, post-college. Um, I do hyper-realist style landscape paintings for the most part. Um, but I, I've had less time for that recently now that I've taken on the field guide and the naturals notebook. And then post-college, I did a whole bunch of different things. I I really haven't, um, haven't stuck with any one thing for a terribly long time. 
basically because you know I needed some time to to figure out exactly what I wanted to do with myself. You know, like I said, it, at COA, it didn't really help me hone in that much. It just made me passionate about a huge array of things, <laughs> which um, I didn't quite get to the point of figuring out how to apply that to um, earning a livelihood and and also you know making positive change in the world and and you know being living a, a fulfilled curious you know passionate life you know it, it took a while post-college and still I, I'm often like I got somewhere with that it's an ongoing never-ending <laughs> challenge um and so post-college I, I worked for Maine Coastal Islands National Wildlife Refuge monitoring breeding seabird populations off the coast of Maine so I lived on Petit Manan Island and the old lighthouse keeper's house and monitored Atlantic puffins and Arctic terns and 13 or so other species of seabirds um, I worked on Seal Island which is 20 or so miles offshore from Vinyl Haven a oh, dozen or so different islands which was a, an amazing experience. I feel so deeply fortunate to have been able to spend time in some of the most beautiful places in the world. I sometimes get annoyed with my friends who were born and raised in Maine because they don't realize, and how could they, right? You know, how can you have a perspective if you haven't experienced something? And I don't blame them at all, but they don't realize what a magical, magnificent place this is and how fortunate we are to be here. I think back sometimes, I, I sometimes feel as though like I, I survived something having grown up in Cleveland. I was exposed to a lot of violence growing up. And after I came to COA, it, it took me a long time not to like lock my dorm room and lock my car and like lock down every single thing that I have for fear of it being taken away or like to be willing to go out after dark you know because up here you, you're not necessarily gonna get assaulted if you go out after dark in Cleveland you probably will <laughs> um so you know huge contrast and so for a while post-college honestly I was just soaking up the bliss of being here and trying to spend as much time um immersed in in, in learning uh, about the flora and fauna of this place and and trying to find a way to apply myself to protecting them as well um I, I do believe that a lot of the work that I did with Maine Coastal Islands was um, integral to making a case for protecting species long-term. Um, and ultimately, um, that didn't pan out because it's it's a hard life being a gig-based field researcher. I did it for the better part of a decade, but it's um, you can't live on Mount Desert Island and do that. It's just simply financially impossible. Uh, and that has always been my struggle of I, balancing doing work that I'm passionate about versus, you know, working to live and, you know, to afford the basic necessities of life. You know, I'm not a trust fund kid. And, um, you know, it's a common theme uh, on your podcasts, especially, I think. But housing is out of control, guys. I mean, <laughs> I'm extremely fortunate right now. My My partner is extremely skilled and so he just bought a couple of acres of um, undeveloped forest on uh, mount desert island just outside of bar harbor and he 
um, cleared a, a, a part of it and put in his own foundation and built a timber frame house and did all of his own plumbing and wiring and the whole nine yards and, and therefore saved hundreds of thousands of dollars by doing it that way. Um, and so by, you know, teaming up with him, I've been able to make it work living here, um, but definitely have had to to sacrifice a lot of, you know, doing doing things that I'm passionate about for the sake of doing what I have to in order to live here and to be part of this community. Post-college, I really didn't want to go anywhere, but I also didn't want to be one of those graduates that just hangs out in their college town, you know, and meanders about aimlessly. I, I really did want, you know, to make a positive change. And so I, I promised myself that, you know, when I felt like I wasn't learning new things and giving back to the community and growing as a person, I would move on to the next thing, I, you know, find out, you know, whatever was next. And, you know, it's been, I graduated in 2012. So it's been almost 13 years since I graduated. No, wait, not 13 years. <laughs> It's been uh, about 11 years since I graduated, and I, I don't feel like any of those things are true. I, I definitely still feel like I'm just making more and more connections in this community. The contrast, another contrast between growing up in Cleveland and, and getting to live on Mount Desert Island is it's, uh, at least in the neighborhood that I grew up in, it was very much a fight for survival sort of mentality. There was a lot of anonymity. It wasn't like you said hi to your neighbors. You just put your head down and, and did what you had to do. And um, it kind of freaked me out when I first moved to Mount Desert Island that everybody knows everybody and knows everything about everybody's business. And it's like really tight-knit up here and and so at first I found that overwhelming and now I just relish it I love um you know knowing going to Henford and like knowing every single person who's there and like you know catching up in the produce aisle <laughs> I I'm deeply grateful for for the community that we have here um and I I think that's one of my biggest values is um having a community where people take care of each other I I've learned, you know, family is important, but you can also choose people who are not blood relatives to be your family. And um, it's all about, you know, time and energy investment in other people. And I think I, I spent a lot of time in my early 20s dwelling on what I didn't have. And um, now one of the contrasts, I think, is that I... I'm realizing that you can seek out, you know, the things that you need to have a fulfilled life. And as long as you make a concerted effort to attain, obtain those things, whether they're community or a, a job that is fulfilling, um, as long as you're focused and, and keep working towards it, you know, it's not like anything is possible. Everyone has limitations and and different levels of privilege but i think um just staying focused on on those goals and then nurturing what you do have and and making the most of it has been something um that i've been honing in on over the years My name is Pepin Middlehauser, and you're listening to my conversation with Jordan Chalfont on the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU. 
stopped working for Maine Coastal Islands. Um, I was still doing a, a bit of work for Maine Natural History Observatory, which is a really cool organization uh, run by someone with the last, same last name as you, Pepin. Imagine that. And it's a nonprofit that does um, really important work in the state of Maine. Um, it's uh, biological monitoring, um, so doing long-term studies um, to track changes over time and to document species and basically to collect the baseline data that's necessary in order to do any further lobbying for protection of lands or or to you know make a scientific case for climate change and and for policy changes around that. Um, so it, it's foundational work and it's field work which I adore. I, I didn't go on to get a master's after I got my undergrad, because everyone I knew with a master's, number one, was miserable getting in the whole higher education realm. And I, you know, when I finished, when I finished at COA, I, I was just coming out of like eight years of college because I went straight from community college to COA and I just couldn't do it anymore. I was so done with academia. And um, so I didn't get a master's degree because everybody with a master's degree um, was wicked stressed out and then ended up with a desk job, which I, I've never wanted. Um, and so I kept doing field work with Maine Natural History and supplemented that with doing estate gardening around Mount Desert Island, which I really enjoyed. Um, and then that kind of transitioned into guiding in Acadia National Park. I worked for a tour company that actually, <laughs> touch on some hot topics here. The tour company that I worked for catered to the cruise ships that come into Bar Harbor. So I um, drove a 14 passenger luxury uh, coach and filled it up with cruise ship passengers and wore my little microphone headset and drove the Park Loop Road in Acadia National Park and did one right after the other after the other two and a half hour tours where I narrated and drove and um, that was some of the most stressful work I've ever done. I don't know if anybody listening has been to Acadia National Park in August but it's a little bit of a zoo um, and driving and talking and taking care of the needs of 14 geriatrics is a bit uh, exhausting, but it was and soul sucking. And honestly, it, it was um, a lifestyle that allowed me the flexibility to take winters off and to paint. Um, so that part made it worthwhile. And also, anytime I felt overwhelmed and like wanted to quit, I, I did the guiding for three years. I would remind myself that most of the passengers that I encountered were the sort of people that um, maybe, you know, with the exception of this cruise, don't really get out and see much of the world and maybe are getting their news from some biased places uh, and maybe aren't exposed to the messages about conservation and climate change that are so important to me. And so I use you know, my little coach tours as a soapbox to tell people about whatever I felt was important. I did not stick to script, um, you know, whatever the actual issues socially and, and economically and um, in terms of natural resources that, that were going on is what I talked about. Um, and I think people appreciated that authenticity. And I did the math. And I think over the course of those three years, I, I spent two and a half hours talking to well over a thousand people. Um, 
but ultimately that lifestyle didn't end up being sustainable for me as either I would get really sick um from these tours like physically ill from the stress of of driving the park loop road all day every day all summer long and with all of the human interaction I'm deeply introverted and a little bit um still still working on catching up socially <laughs> uh and so it's um yeah, I mean, there were there were great things about being homeschooled, but I didn't interact with a whole lot of people for the first 15 years of my life. And part of it, I also think I'm just like genetically introverted. And, you know, it's a whole range of factors. But ultimately, you know, spending most of every single day in some form of public speaking was too much. Um, and that job ended up getting ended for me um, because the pandemic happened and there were no cruise ships and there were no tourists to give tours to. So in 2020 is when I switched from doing tour guiding and I, I went back to estate gardening. And during the time that I had been estate gardening, working for Maine Coastal Islands, and doing the biological monitoring with Maine Natural History and the guiding. I was also working um, here and there for the Naturalist Notebook, which is a nature and science exploratorium in Seal Harbor. It's a three-floored building with themed rooms like biodiversity hotspots and the main forest and the ocean and outer space and your brain and uh, the moon and uh, the downstairs is like this color-coded uh, travel through the deep history of earth and it's the love child of these two amazing human beings Craig Neff and Familia Markwood um who became really important mentors to me, they found me because they wanted to do an exhibit about seabirds and they, someone told them that I had been doing um, seabird work. And so they wanted to have me help inform that part of the shop. Um, and that was kind of their, their format. Like they, neither of them had a science background. Uh, Pamelia was a career artist and Craig was an editor at Sports Illustrated. So super random, but they both cared very deeply about conservation. And um, Pammy was an extremely conscious human and deeply empathetic. And both of them loved you know, books and, and learning and educating themselves. I mean, they were systematic about their learning process. It was extremely admirable. And so they wanted to create a space where they could share those passions with other people and encourage other people to learn and, and to promote books and, and conservation issues and like what, you know, whatever the issue of the day was, you know, they would have a feature at the Natural Book about it. And so I um, grew to have a really close relationship with uh, Pammy and Craig, and they were close mentors to me. And, and I started working at the shop just somewhere between part and full time for um, a number of years. So Pammy passed away unexpectedly in 2018, uh, which was crushing. That was one of the hardest losses of my entire life. And I learned a lot from it, like that if you love someone, you should make sure to tell them that. Tell them all the time, actually. Like anything you want to say to somebody, say it. And um, yeah, just appreciate people. Um, 
so we lost Pammy and Craig understandably, you know, couldn't keep the natural snowbook going on his own. So he um, wanted to find a buyer for it and searched for over a year and couldn't find anybody who wanted the business. They just wanted the building. And uh, so he sent me an email um, in 20, summer of 2020 um, that said that, you know, he was selling the natural snowbook, just the building. So this was the end. We, we needed to say goodbye to it. And all I could think about was the tens of thousands of hours that have gone into making the shop. I mean, dozens and dozens and dozens of people have worked on it over the past 13 or so years. It was, you know, Pammy's three-dimensional installation of her life. And, and there's so much of her infused in that space. I I was really upset. And so I I went to work bawling. <laughs> I'm like piddling around in this estate garden, just like crying as I go. And the owner like happened to come out and be like, what's wrong with you? And uh and so I told them, and it turns out that the um the owner of the property I was working on had really great memories of taking their kids to the natural snowbook and um sort of an uh a bar harbor entrepreneur. Um, Michael Boland, he owns like Havana restaurant and chocolate latte, and a whole, whole slew of places. And he was like, well, I'll buy it if you manage it <laughs> like on the spot. And I actually, I didn't say yes right away. I, I told him I would go home and think about it because, um, you know, I want more than anything for the natural center to exist. I, you know, had never really thought of myself as, you know, ending up doing retail management for my bread and butter. So I had to wrap my head around it. But ultimately, it felt right. You know, I've done this whole disjointed, you know, past decade or so of working, you know, dozens of field jobs and this gardening and the tour guiding and, you know, doing art and all of these things. And, and it, um, kind of makes sense in the context of the naturalist notebook. Like if someone asks me for a field guide recommendation, I can really tell them, you know, which field guides work because I use them like for my profession all the time. And if somebody comes in with a gardening question, I can be like, well, let me tell you about carrots, love tomatoes or like whatever book I'm on at the time. And um, so, and I love books. Uh, you know, I, I think I mentioned earlier that when I was growing up, my safe space was the library. Um, that was where I could go and feel like no matter what was going on at home, everything was okay. Um, and it was a place I could be imaginative. And I loved the children's library. And it was like the closest thing that I had to community um, growing up. And so the idea of working amongst you know, well over a thousand nature and science books and having the authority to curate the collection was pretty exciting to me. Um, and it, it runs in my blood. My my mom actually, after she finished the child rearing phase of her life, she went back to school and got a master's degree in library science. And now she's a librarian and I work as a bookstore manager. So there's just something about us. We're, we're book people. <laughs> um, so I, I ended up taking on the naturalist notebook management position, which was a huge learning curve. I mean, managing a retail business has, entails a lot um, of skills that I 
had not developed and I'm still working on developing. But ultimately, it's very fulfilling. My favorite part of my job there is when people come in and they get excited about the books that they find in the shop and we have conversations about it. And that leads them to tell me about other books that they love. And then I research those. I'm very careful about what I put in the naturalist's notebook. I, in this age of misinformation and my personal overwhelm of wanting to educate myself, but not you know, especially in terms of current events, not knowing, you know, where to go for reliable information sometimes and and always having to, I mean, that's just a fact of life. You always have to question things. Um, but I want people to come to the Naturalist Notebook and know that the information in there has been vetted, at least by me. And Pammy and Craig created a really interesting system for vetting information where they thoroughly researched um, some of the biggest names in science. And they had a list of like 30 scientists, including people like Jane Goodall and E.O. Wilson and you know Neil deGrasse Tyson, a lot of big name people, a lot of people who are less well known, but are you know pretty universally considered uh, preeminent in their field. And so if any of these people on their list recommended another book, they were like, oh, okay, this book is in. I don't know this author, but you know, E.O. Wilson gives it a thumbs up. So like, we're gonna like, that one's okay. And um, I still use that system. And, and I've added other, um, uh, you know, other vetting components to my curation of the naturalist notebook. But, you know, so people tell me about these books, I get the books in the shop. And that inspires more people who buy those books and then tell me about other books. And it's this continuous cycle of, um, learning and sharing information and celebrating science and exploration and cultivating curiosity. And those are my ideals for the shop. Those are, those are the things that I want it to be. Basically, I want it to be the retail embodiment of human ecology. That's my, that's my goal. <laughs> um. <laughs> You're listening to my conversation with Jordan Chalfont on the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU. consuming job it's a lot but i still get my nature fix uh with the seaweeds of maine project i you know, books are one thing that have been a theme in my life of, of an anchor it's something i can always turn to to feel grounded and and um peaceful and nature is another one and um i'm really concerned about our earth And it can be super overwhelming. Uh, Sometimes it can be debilitatingly overwhelming and just sad um, and and unbearable. You know, the the rate of destruction that's going on globally. Um, And when I feel 
and not just with the environment, either socially speaking as well. When I feel overwhelmed and like I'm not okay, I have learned over the years that one of my most effective forms of self-care is to just go out in the woods and just be in the woods and notice, you know, oh, the mayflowers are going by, but the shad bush is blooming now. And like these, you know, phenology um, things, these cycles of nature are extremely grounding to me. And, you know, all it takes is like running across an otter on a beaver pond and like i'm fine for weeks like i get overwhelmed i just think about seeing that otter and everything's okay again like the world might be going up in flames but there's still an otter over on richardson brook and like that otter's doing all right like this is you know this is how i'm getting through the world man of just you know taking taking my time to recharge my batteries in nature and that you know appreciation fuels care and and passion for um you know working towards the protection and preservation of of those things so i have been cultivated as a naturalist by some really amazing scientists naturalists political activists but people who um are very observant of the natural world have taken me under their wings and um enriched my life in a really meaningful way. And there's a handful of people, including all of the authors of Plants of Acadia National Park Field Guide, who I feel deeply indebted to for the um for for how they've enriched my life. And I have always had this feeling that I want to give back. So I got interested in seaweed as a student at College of the Atlantic. I took a winter coastal ecology class, and part of that class uh, was um, creating a collection of seaweeds, um, pressed seaweeds, and learning the basics of seaweed identification. Uh, the class was TA'd by a woman named Kip Quimby, who has been working in the marine world on the coast of Maine her entire life. Um, and and she taught me a ton about seaweeds and it kind of turned into an obsession partially because of how awesome the science and art overlap is in seaweed. I really thrive in that, that, you know, science and art overlap realm and seaweed, pressed seaweed is gorgeous. It's so, so beautiful. And I love nothing more than walking a beach or a rocky coastline and picking up seaweed and bringing it home and arranging it and pressing it and making art. It's a, it's a pretty harmless way of enjoying yourself. You know, like over time, my focus as an artist has shifted less because my interests have shifted and more because my sense of responsibility has developed like oil paints are really toxic um and and i am and i used to really enjoy like um making uh resin jewelry where i would like dry flowers and like make it into jewelry and then i'm like oh i'm literally like coating natural things in plastic Maybe this is not actually okay. So if I'm going to do something to enjoy myself, I would like to do it as consciously and respectfully as possible. Um, so seaweed seemed like uh, a really great way to do that. So as I was exploring seaweed, I became really frustrated with the lack of identification resources. There's a handful of books out there that are 
very technical, super terminology heavy, pretty much devoid of illustrations and photographs and just not accessible to hobby naturalists and beginners and, you know, anybody who doesn't have a PhD in psychology. Psychology is the study of seaweed, not to be confused with psychology, which seems to be a problem for Google. <laughs> um, so I happen to know uh, Glenn Middelheiser, all right, who has written uh, well, half a dozen or so field guides to flora of Maine. And I was like, hey, Glenn, you should write a field guide to seaweed. And he was like, Jordan, you should write a field guide to seaweed. And I was like, well, what if we write a field guide to seaweed? And he agreed, which is great uh, for me. Um, and we now have a, a third co-author as well, Dr. Amanda Savoie, who is the seaweed researcher at the Canadian Museum of Nature. She studied under Dr. Gary Saunders, who's kind of the most preeminent um, seaweed researcher or, and taxonomy classification specialist uh, in the Northwest Atlantic. Um, and so we have a really great team because Gwen is experienced with writing field guides. Amanda is extremely knowledgeable about seaweed. And I um, am pretty obsessed with the uh, aesthetic side of it, the photo documentation side of it. And with classification, I went through the process of self-teaching myself all of the terminology around seaweed and muddled through these dichotomous keys until I knew how to use them. And because I had to go through that process on my own without someone telling me how to get there, I now have a really clear idea of what works for beginners and what doesn't and like what macro characteristics are being overlooked in favor of cellular characters that have just been traditionally used over time because they're more reliable. And so we are working on this field guide. Um, and because there's not a whole ton of uh, research out there, there's maybe I would say like a half a dozen really stellar phycologists, seaweed researchers that have uh, sampled pretty extensively on the coast of Maine over the past 250 years. Um, so there have been some inventories, but there's a lot of unknowns. There's a lot of you know, coastline here that hasn't been explored by people who are looking at seaweed. There's no such thing as a species list for seaweeds of Maine. And so one of the, you know, foundational things that we have to do to get our project rolling is to create a database of seaweed records. So we're going through all of the published literature, all of the herbarium records, all of the unpublished observations, and pretty much any seaweed record we can find and putting it in a database. And from that, we'll be able to generate information on distribution and commonality um, and to have a, a more complete species list. And right now, it's looking like there um, are well over 300 species of seaweed in Maine, which I think most people, if you ask them, they would say, oh, well, maybe like 10. <laughs> so uh, it's a big project uh, and more involved than I, I think I realized when I signed on to it rather naively. <laughs> but as I have been working on it, even though the project seems to be 
growing as fast as I can accomplish things, I'm just getting more and more passionate about it. And I keep rounding these learning curves where I'm like, okay, like this makes sense now. Like I can go out in the inner title and I know what I know and I know what I don't know. Seaweeds are very frustrating in comparison even to plants and, and definitely to most of the rest of you know the macro flora and fauna out there in that they're very plastic they they do whatever they want they don't necessarily consistently follow a certain branching pattern or a certain size or a certain color you know the sort of morphological characters that we rely on to identify plants for example don't hold true for seaweeds um so it can be and and traditionally scientists have used things like size and shape of the cell number of plastids these very microscopic and technical characters that are more reliable but less accessible to people you know if you don't have a two thousand dollar microscope good luck identifying seaweed and i don't believe that it has to be that way i think that there are macro characters that in combination can be used to pretty reliably get to uh identifications and i'm really excited to provide tons of illustrations, primarily photographs for people to use because that whole saying of, uh, you know, a, a, a photo is worth a thousand words is definitely true, at least in my experience when it comes to identification. Um, so that project is extremely fulfilling to me because I feel like when it's finished, I'll have my little contribution to the natural world, to to the people who have nurtured and enriched my life by providing such resources to me. I now, you know, have my little specialty where, you know, over time I'm going to be able to create something that will hopefully enrich other people's lives and encourage them to look more closely at seaweed and to care more about seaweed. I think that seaweed has the same potential that plants do to be bioindicators. In my own observation, I, I can tell if there are nitrogen-influenced waters or waters where there's a lot of boat traffic based on what the species assemblage is there of, of the marine macroalgae or the seaweed. So I think that there's potential there for for seaweeds to um, be looked at in a broader ecological sense and in a um, in a conservation sense in a um, you know they, they can even be used to m make more informed management decisions um, when it comes to our coastal resources it's just people need to be able to identify them first uh, which is remarkably challenging um, to to beginners so hopefully this field guide by remaining semi-technical by relying as much as humanly possible on macro characters and by providing lots of illustrations will open doors to allow a greater um, diversity of people of varying backgrounds and skill sets to access the world of seaweed. And, and I'm excited to see what comes of it. And in the meantime, it, it's also extremely indulgent. It appeals so much to my, my you know, classification prone 
and a neurotic brain. Um, and it gets me out in the intertidal zone in beautiful, beautiful places. I feel so um, enriched after after getting to spend time with seaweed. So that's that's my passion project. Don't hold your breath for it. It's still a fair number of years out because we don't have funding and we're all working on it in our free time. But um, it's going to happen. And um, that's, yeah, that's fun. <laughs> This is the Next Wave Radio Hour from WERU. My name is Pepin Middlehauser, and you're listening to my conversation with Jordan Chalfont. ask like kind of a, a general question about it kind, of, kind of generally like what's next in a way like you know do you know like where your future is taking you but I feel like you also kind of explained like a pretty well that it kind of doesn't matter like you know where you're at right now and you know that things are ever changing and shifting and you'll be moving on to other stuff at some point probably but who knows what that is and it, it sounds like you're pretty like at peace with that and like you know understand that too at Glad least, it you sounds know, that way it does it does sound that way i'm working on that that's definitely an ideal i hold of being present and and not spending all your time worrying about you know whether what you're doing is perfect and what you're going to do next and i've spent my fair share of time you know obsessing on those things especially in in my earlier 20s and it, it's not that I am at peace with where I am right now necessarily, but I'm working on it. I am, um, I'm a little bit obsessed with Eleanor Roosevelt. I don't know how I got to be 33 years old without, and have two college degrees without knowing uh, a great depth of information about her life, but everybody should know everything about Eleanor Roosevelt because she was an incredible human. My partner and I watched this like 20 odd hour PBS documentary about the Roosevelt family and it was extremely informative, but a little bit dry. And at the end of it, I was like, okay, whatever, Theodore, whatever, Franklin, but Eleanor, I want to know what the inside of this woman's brain looked like because she accomplished so much and she was such a champion of of you know people who were discriminated against either because of their class or their race or whatever demographic was the underdog she was their champion and she did a tremendous amount to further the united states on on social issues and and to provide to change the framework of how we perceive our government and and to um apply responsibility to our government to take care of its people and in a lot of ways we've backslided since Eleanor's time um 
But I read this book by her. I, I was thankful because I wanted to look at the inside of Eleanor's brain. Turns out, towards the end of her life, she wrote this book called You Learn by Living. Uh, and it's like the culmination of her life uh, experiences and knowledge and wisdom. And she's very, very humble. She's like, this is not the end. I'll be all like, don't take this as, you know, anything more than just, you know, what I ended up with. Um, but it's deeply wise and it's exactly what I needed to hear. And, um, I, I think everyone should, should have to read her book. And I, I feel at this moment, I, I have just finished reading Eleanor's book and it's positively changed my view of the world in a way that might end up fading over time. But at the moment, I feel more inspired than ever to be um, active in my community and to take on social responsibility. You know, of, of I spent most of my 20s just angry about the state of things, angry that I was born into a post-capitalist world with a failing democracy and and that there's so much hatred and misuse of of our natural resources and mistreatment of people and other sentient beings. And I have spent most of my time being over cripplingly overwhelmed by those things. And Eleanor has helped me reframe that a little bit in terms of, you know, I'll never be able to make the impact that she made. But she had an affluent background and her husband was president of the United States. I mean, she had resources to make a resounding impact on the earth. I don't have that background. I'm decidedly working class and spend most of my time working to live and don't, you know, don't have the same capacity to make huge changes. But I can, I can embody her worldview in smaller ways. Like, you know, as I've been thinking about how to apply her her sense of social responsibility to my own life, it's like, well, you know, you could start with something as simple as going to the town meeting in June. Like, that's a good place to start. Like, just find out what's going on in your community and, like, inform yourself and form, you know, opinions. And then, you know, it'll become clear how you can act upon those things. And, and the philosophies that I've learned from Eleanor Roosevelt of, of basically... I don't know, just, she, I don't agree with every single thing Eleanor said by any stretch of the imagination. Some of it is a little cringy. It didn't, uh, hasn't aged well, either just a product of the times of the world she was living in at the time, or there, she has some unprocessed trauma that I don't think she ever really worked through. But, um, she definitely had a, like, a pretty hard, philosophy of take responsibility for yourself you know like maybe you can't change the world but you can change what you're doing to some degree and and i i agree to some degree i also think that a lot of us are you know just born into what we're born in and have to do the best we can but but that's also sort of her philosophy as well so what i'm trying to say is that eleanor has helped me to realize that even in my very small life, in my very limited ways, I can use whatever circumstances I'm in at the moment in an effort to make the world a better place. You know, I might just be working at the Naturalist Notebook 
selling books, but I can have meaningful conversations with people. I can I can connect with people, which I think the world needs more connection. And, and I might not be able to do that on a huge scale, but I can do that with the person I'm talking to at that moment in the naturalist notebook. Um, and I might not be able to save the world's oceans, but I can provide a small resource that will make it easier for other people to make in, impactful changes. So I am focused on learning how to be at peace in my in in my circumstances and uh it's an ongoing process and i have definitely some really dark times around it but at the moment maybe because the shad bush is flowering and the apple trees are flowering and the tulips are up uh i feel pretty hopeful <laughs> and pretty pretty content and pretty full of gratitude for this life that i i get to live here I usually finish every interview with like, you know, is there something that you uh, know now that you didn't used to know, which gets into kind of the, you know, having regrets about things that happened in your life, because everything that has happened to you has created who you are now, which is, you know, in the broad spectrum, a, a good thing, you know, or maybe reframing the question, I guess, into like, you know, is there something that you have learned over the course of your life thus far that you could tell somebody who is, you know, five or 10 years younger, you know, earlier in their life than you, that might help them. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like I'm still in the thick of figuring it out. And Eleanor Roosevelt says that that's a lifelong process. You never, you never figure it out. But and not to get off on a like huge other tangent that doesn't fit with any of the theme that we've been talking about. But I definitely uh, went through a phase of my life where because I was unhappy, I relied heavily on substances um, and substances with pretty seriously negative side effects. And I've spent a lot of time and energy digging myself out of that pit and learning to replace habits and coping mechanisms that are harmful to me with ones that don't do harm because when you're harming yourself you're harming the world too that's something that I it took a long time to sink in you know I've always cared about other people and the natural world and I haven't applied that same care to myself until relatively recently actually but um I think that that's foundational to making a positive change in the world. You have to start with yourself. And part of that is figuring out how to be a grown up and to like take care of yourself. That's, I, I personally wasn't really taught how to do that. I've had to do a lot of figuring it out and a lot of replacing harmful habits and coping mechanisms with ones that aren't harmful. Like, let's just go on a walk and be in nature for a little while or go look at seaweed in a tide pool or uh, drink a cup of tea or read a book you know those are all things that you can do to fortify yourself and to you know refill your cup and and to bring hope back into your life that that aren't harming you or anybody else um so yeah i guess if i were to go back and tell myself something or or tell someone else in their early angry 20s something it it would be that you, you just have to start with taking care of yourself. Um, and then, you know, once you know how to do that, you can start to reach outward more and more. That was Jordan Chalfont, a 
naturalist, artist, and manager of the Naturalist's Notebook in Seal Harbor. For more information, you can visit thenaturalistsnotebook.com. Also, I would like to mention that as Jordan implied, Glenn Middlehauser, the executive director of Maine Natural History Observatory and Jordan's collaborator on the Seaweeds of Maine project, is in fact my father. You can find more information about Maine Natural History Observatory and the Seaweed Project at mainnaturalhistory.org. My name is Pepin Middlehauser, and this has been the Next Wave Radio Hour. I want to give a huge thank you to my guest today, Jordan Chalfont. Thank you also to the Maine Community Foundation for supporting this program. Our theme music is by Zeke Sakaridis. You can find the archive of this and other episodes at weru.org and wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email nextwaveradio at weru.org. I'd love to hear from you. Next Wave Radio Hour airs on the fourth Thursday of every month at 4 p.m. Until next time, stay safe out there.